Hello, I'm Remy, and I'm the secretary of the Advocacy Project and also the team lead on season three of the Speak Now podcast. The Advocacy Project is dedicated to democratizing an education and advocacy, so we do this in two ways. First, we teach workshops dedicated to storytelling, public speaking, leadership, organizing, and mobilizing, um, coalition building, and more, all skills inherent to advocacy. We also host events dedicated to specific types of advocacy, and to help facilitate that, we bring in experienced advocates in different careers and disciplines to talk about their experiences and advocacy initiatives. Part of advocacy is learning from people in your network and building your network, and bringing in experienced advocates can teach you things that you can do in your own future and also just inspire you to spearhead your own endeavors. So with that, it brings us to our third season of Speak Now, in which we are seeking to highlight important community advocacy work by spotlighting nonprofits and their leaders. In keeping with Women's History Month and on the heels of Black History Month, we have Sydney McKinney here from the National Black Women's Justice Institute. Her career highlights are extensive, to say the least. Um, they include being the executive director of the National Black, uh, National Black Women's Justice Institute, research associate at the Vera Institute, senior director of data analysis and accountability at St. Vincent's Services. She also has every degree under the sun. Um, she has a PhD in sociology from NYU, two masters in law and society from NYU, and a master's from Columbia, and a BA from Tufts. So with that, we welcome Sydney. So Sydney, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved with social justice work? Uh, well, first, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Um, you read a little bit about my background, which does sound a little tremendous when you say it out loud. Uh, but uh, I really started this work from just a deep passion and a love for uh, Black women and girls and just my community in general. I've always known that uh, research was a place for me. When I was younger, I thought I was going to be a virologist, um, but then I took a chem or a science class in college and I was like, mm, that's not happening. Uh, and so I really turned to American studies, which really opened up my eyes to the ways in which race and gender um, and the patriarchy really shape and inform our lives. Uh, and I really have wanted to fight against that um, as best as that I could. Uh, when I started my master's in public health, I was introduced to uh, this concept of community-based participatory research, which really changed my life because it was this way of marrying my deep love for social justice and research by being able to bring in the community. And so I'm excited to be at an organization that allows me to do that. Um, it feels very special. So on the topic of research, how would you say your background in research has prepared you for a career in advocacy and with regard to policy, mobilizing and organizing? So my background in research is really the foundation of how I show up as an advocate in this world. Growing up, I think a lot of folks like myself have always thought about, you know, organizing in your community as the way that you can advocate and support. And actually, I grew up with a mom who was a political organizer and so was definitely exposed to that at an early age. But I've always appreciated and valued the ways that research can be used to really transform our communities and really bring visibility to issues um, and to garner investment in issues that are impacting us. And so I really think about research as this way of storytelling, 
a way of uplifting people's voices and experiences, particularly directly impacted people, and being able to use that data to make the case for why we need to stop um, over-policing Black communities, why we need to stop over-criminalizing and incarcerating um, people, particularly Black folks. And so I've really just used research as my, my tool, and it's a way to just create visibility. Could you tell us a little about your experience at the Vera Institute and St. Vincent's and how it prepared you for your work now? That's a really great and interesting question. Um, so the way that I think about my experience at both of those places, first I'll start with the Vera Institute of Justice. It was really how I learned how to do research in a nonprofit setting, which is very different than how you do research in an academic setting. And once you're in the community or you're working with a government um, organization, it's just a different ball game. Um, it's not as neat and as clean as you're taught. Um, and I'm sure some of the classes that you're taking on research. Being at the Vera Institute of Justice was amazing because it just really exposed to me, exposed me to how you can use research to really expose issues and problems in the criminal legal system. What I also learned at the Vera Institute of Justice is that um, the issues that I cared about were not always front and center at these criminal legal organizations. Uh, and I'm not um, throwing any shade at the Vera Institute of Justice. They're incredible, right? It's how I learned so much of how I do my work today. But I really care about Black women and girls, and that was really never at the forefront of their work, and it really hasn't been at the forefront of other criminal justice research organizations that are doing this kind of work. So it really, you know, helped me understand the ways in which the work is happening and how I wanted to change it, uh, and the ways in which I am really trying to formulate and shape the National Black Women's Justice Institute to be able to do that work, to be able to really engage in criminal justice reform with this intersectional lens that really centers Black women and girls. So what I, I oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, I was just going no, to no, no. ask, um, so how would you say your work focusing on Black women and girls within the criminal justice system and reentry is different than how, say, the Vera Institute focuses on it? And what are some major concerns and issues in the criminal legal system that you have seen and that you are working towards? Uh, I think that one thing that um, the National Black Women's Justice Institute tries um, very intentionally to do is to really center the voices, the expertise, and the experiences of directly impacted folks. We come to our work as researchers and as policy advocates from uh, what we think about in, as a Black feminist framework. And so we've actually developed a framework that we use to guide our work that really prioritizes intersectionality. It prioritizes um, a strength-based approach. Um, it is really founded and rooted in Black feminist and Black womanist scholarship. And that's unique, right? Um, many of the organizations that are doing this work are doing excellent research and evaluation, um, but it is done from this very kind of traditional approach and conventional approach to how you do that work. Unfortunately, historically, conventional approaches to research 
have actually been quite harmful to communities of color um, and black folks in particular. And so we really try to um, shift the way that we approach this so that our work is supportive, it is generative, and hopefully to the extent that pop that is it's possible, it's also healing. Um, I feel like we feel we're very lucky in that we do this work and we have been doing studies with uh, formerly incarcerated Black women who are like, we're so happy to see you because people have been asking us these questions, but they don't look like us, right? So they, there's also this benefit um, to folks of like feeling like the people who are asking them these often invasive and very personal questions are folks who have their best interests, who understand where they come from, um, and really are connected to their communities and their experiences. Unfortunately, that's not how everyone has experienced researchers who are doing this work. So for those who aren't very familiar with Black feminism and how it differs from conventional feminism and conventional approaches to this. Could you elaborate more on that and more on the framework, especially with regard to, you mentioned, you come at it with a certain strength. I'm curious about that. Yeah, so um, for us, you know, we're really thinking about Black feminist frameworks, which are, are engaging in inquiry that is not... Um, you know, the conventional approach, which is very much like we're thinking about there's an objective reality. You cannot be engaged in this community. Being engaged and connected to your community um, may bias your data when the reality is that um, everyone has a biased perspective um, and that you know we shouldn't necessarily be devaluing folks who are coming into the work with a goal and an intention. We actually think that our Black feminist approach strengthens our work because we are truly committed to the communities that we are working with. So it means that we're also approaching this as partners. We are not researchers coming in trying to extract information. We are your partner. We want to develop questions um, that are going to be valuable and useful to you that are going to help move the needle as far as policies that impact your life practices that impact your life, access that you need. We're, we're doing this collaboratively. That means that we're trying to engage folks in every step of our process from developing the research questions that we're trying to answer through our project to what are the tools that we're going to use to what does the analysis look like and what does that mean? All the way through to the end of how do we use this? How do we disseminate this? What are we trying to highlight based on what we've learned? So it's a very collaborative approach. Um, and it is very much about supporting and elevating Black women and, um, and system-impacted Black women and girls. That's really incredible to hear. And I know here at the Advocacy Project, we also really value community and working with the community, with grassroots organizing, um, and other community orgs to make sure that people have a voice. I'm curious to know how you utilize your connections to your community uh, in your work. So um, we we really strongly believe in collaboration. We know that we can't do this without partners. So the way that we really kind of um, move in the world is through partnership and collaboration. I think 
if we were just on a call with someone today and it's just so important to me that people know we're here for you we don't want anything we just really want to support you in any and every way possible and and that really guides the way that we work and so it has allowed us to create relationships with organizations that provide direct services to system impacted black women and girls the National Black Women's Justice Institute is a research and, and policy organization. So we're not providing direct services, which means we don't always have direct contact with folks. So we really rely on our relationships with organizations in, in the field to be able to identify people who would be interested. It means that we also have to like really build trust um, with organizations for them to feel comfortable connecting us with the women that they serve and the girls that they serve, because these are folks who've gone through so much. Uh, and like I said, we don't want to cause harm. Um, we really want to engage in folks in a way that is supportive. So it means that we have to really just be invested in relationship building in order to do that. And that's at all levels, organization to the people that we work with. I could not agree more. We actually, our e-board was just at a coalition building event in Buffalo, and we learned about the importance of relationships when organizing. And so I think that's really great that that guides a lot of your work. Um, I know that the National Black Women's Justice Institute does a lot of policy work, like you mentioned, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on some policy initiatives you've been working on um, and other ways that people could get involved in policymaking, I guess. Yeah, so we have been doing a lot of work for the past four or five years uh, related to reentry, specifically focused on formerly incarcerated Black women who are returning home from incarceration. So we just wrapped up an evaluation of a few organizations that are providing gender responsive, culturally affirming, and trauma sensitive reentry services to Black women and other women of color. Uh, following that, and really inspired by what we learned through that evaluation, we launched our own qualitative research study where we spoke to 21 formerly incarcerated Black women in California to learn about their experiences, specifically focused on how they access healthcare and really take care of their health and wellness after incarceration. Based on that, we're trying to, we're in the process of creating a you know, community of learning and support for organizations that do re-entry services and are really committed to serving Black women and girls. The reason why we're focused on building this community of support is because so much of the re-entry landscape that exists, the services and the resources that are, are provided by organizations, they are not created with an intersectional lens nor with like a really gendered focus. And we know that the pathways that lead women into contact with the criminal legal system are different than those of men and that their experiences post-incarceration are also different. And so we actually do need re-entry services that are specific and really attuned to their specific needs. That doesn't really exist. There are pockets of folks and organizations that are doing this and doing this well, but we really want to create a movement of organizations that are committed to this. And so we're trying to create this um, reentry network uh, that helps really build 
and share knowledge across these organizations and also helps them build power so that they can collectively organize around issues that are impacting the women that they serve. So that's one um, way in which we are engaging in ag advocacy. We really see ourselves as a bridge builder. So one is we want to uh, obviously push legislation that's gonna be beneficial to the communities we serve, but we wanna also build up the capacity and the support um, within these organizations to be able to do it. Uh, direct service organizations really need to be at the forefront of advocacy, but they don't always have the capacity or that person on staff who has that experience. And so we really want to help folks develop that advocacy muscle so that we can be stronger doing this together. So um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on how reentry looks different for Black women and girls than it does for men or for uh, like white uh, people. Yeah, so the the major difference has to do with the factors that bring women and girls into contact with the criminal legal system. So the depending on the studies you look at, you can see um, anywhere from seventy five to ninety percent of women who are who are incarcerated are survivors of gender based violence, um, are survivors of sexual violence, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, child sexual abuse. That's not to say that men and boys who are impacted by the criminal legal system are not also survivors of um, gender-based violence, but it is much more prevalent among incarcerated women. And that is far more prevalent than um, women in the general population as well, right? So these are women who have experienced deep trauma and often repeated traumas over the course of their lifetime. I just saw an updated stat today that showed almost 51% of women who are arrested for prostitution are Black, right? So there is just a way in which, and, and prostitution often is um, are folks who are experiencing trafficking. So I just, you know, the ways in which gender-based violence shows up in people's lives is, is really prominent for women who are incarcerated. Uh, also, 80% of women who are incarcerated are mothers. Uh, and so while many of the men who are incarcerated are fathers, they were not the primary caregivers when they were in the community. That was often the mother. She was also the breadwinner. So when she leaves the home, it really throws a family into a state of instability. So when folks are coming home, when Black women are coming home, really the we need a wraparound support it can't just be job focused or education focused. It has to be employment and all of the things, um, family reunification, education, legal assistance, um, you know, health and wellness, uh, food, right? Like how do we support folks with meeting their basic needs? And that's true for, for men, but I think there's just stuff that's very unique that we're not accounting for in most of our programs. I think many of our reentry programs have kind of a singular focus and the work that we've done has shown you cannot support a woman in finding a job if she doesn't have a place to live and that she, if she's concerned and stressed out about how she's gonna reconnect with her family 
or the kind of how she's going to get her license, right? There are just all of these things that you have to address and attend to um, and that really require, you know, a gender responsive and a trauma sensitive approach that I think is necessary all the time, but particularly so when you are working with Black women and girls. I did not know any of that. That's very, very insightful. Thank you so much. Um, I'm sorry I'm left a little speechless after all of that. How do you address all of those needs? Because you mentioned that orgs typically are only able to address one or two needs. And how how can we best support these Black women and girls in reentry? So there are excellent organizations out there doing it. One is A New Way of Life. Uh, another is um, the, A Time for Change Foundation. These are Black women, directly impacted Black women who have created and have founded um, really re-entry programs for other folks just like them. Um, Susan Burton has this beautiful memoir um, about you know, really how she came into contact with the criminal legal system and, and how she became Miss Burton. And really, that's the story of her really creating a new way of life, which is this amazing program in LA. So there are excellent programs we can look to. I think the really core of what we have learned is that it's really important that these are programs um, that are, to the extent possible, led by directly impacted folks, and if not led by, must be staffed by folks who are directly impacted. There's just a way in which working with someone who understands your experience really supports the like the reentry journeys of, I think, directly impacted women. And so to me, I feel like that's the really the big takeaway. The, the other thing that I think is so important is that we must listen to directly impacted folks about what it is that they need. We shouldn't just be, you know, creating programs because we're smart people and we can like read some articles and it'll tell us to do X and Y. Doing X or Y may not actually be what a person needs. And we don't really honor and uh, really value the expertise of the, that comes from experience. And that's something that we really try to uplift at our organization, which is the folks who have experienced these harms by the system and in other parts of their lives are the people who are best suited to tell us what are the changes that need to be made and what kind of program programming and services would best support them. And that's really what we need to be doing. So how does the National Black Women's Justice Institute work directly with these people that are directly impacted? So um, so we do it in different ways. Uh, I mentioned a few, I mentioned our, the study that we're doing in California, which we call Pathways to Wellness. That was um, a study that we're wrapping up where we are you know, speaking to folks about their experiences. And based on that, we will be preparing a set of recommendations we are also working in collaboration with other organizations that work directly with, um, with young folks and directly impacted folks. And we try and design research and evaluation that really answers the questions that they're um, most in need of kind of data for. So I feel like those are kind of two of the ways that we are, are doing that. Um, 
you know, we are also thinking about ways in which when people participate in our research, uh, they are also connected with mental health services or other kinds of resources uh, because we want to support people um, and understand not only that we must compensate them for their time, but we have to do more than kind of giving them a, a, a name or a phone number to call if they're feeling triggered, right? And so we're trying to think creatively about how we can support the healing of folks that we work with. Generally, I think we're just trying to show up as really good partners in this work by providing data and supporting folks with capacity building um, to really just continue to do the great work that they're doing and to um, improve and do it even better in the future. And the National Black Women's Justice Institute website talks a lot about healing um, and harm. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what healing looks like in your organization and for Black women and girls, especially in these situations. Yeah, so we think that healing is really what justice is. Um, I mentioned that so many of the women and girls who are impacted by the criminal and juvenile legal systems are survivors. They are survivors of gender-based violence. They are also survivors of generational trauma. Uh, and, and for folks who have experienced incarceration, they are survivors of the criminal, they're survivors of incarceration, right? So when we think about healing, we are thinking about how do we support the wellness of the entire person Often that means what are the kind of mental health services that we can make available and support people with. Uh, but it's also thinking about how do we create access to opportunities that are going to support a woman in her transition um, home. We also think about healing-centered justice, and that's really focused on helping the institutions that impact the lives of Black women and girls, um, and often the institutions that are responsible for our criminalization. Uh, and or supporting us uh, after that experience that they are not harming us in the process of trying to help us. And so that's really what we're trying to do with Healing Center Justice is help people understand, you know, we are folks who are survivors. And so, you know, we need to be attuned and attentive to that in the way that we develop policies and what our practices and what our programs are. That's the way that we're approaching healing. But again, what's most important and we're always trying to do is listen to the folks in the communities that we represent and really reflect that back to the systems that are impacting their lives to really change the way that they operate. You know, I think I'm always curious and like don't understand why we are punishing people who our survivors, right? It just doesn't actually make sense that that is our response to the harm that they have experienced. I couldn't agree more. Um, something you mentioned earlier, which I thought was really interesting, was um, with regard to healing and reentry, one of the prongs that you take in your approach is um, cultural affirmation. And I wanted to know more about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think. You've probably heard this, people talk a lot about cultural competency, and I'm always wary of what that means. When I worked in foster care, that was like, did you ask the family about what holidays they celebrated? Uh, which to me is not cultural competency at all. I also um, 
I want you to affirm my identity. And that's really what um, cultural affirmation is. I think for Black women and girls who are impacted by the criminal legal system and generally, we walk around in a world that is constantly telling us that we don't belong, that we can't be harmed, uh, and that we don't really matter. We can't have programs that are doing that as well. And so we really expect and demand that these programs and these organizations affirm our identity. I mean, how can we be successful in a program um, if it is just like tolerating us? For us to be able to show up, we really need the affirmation of who we are. And we hear that from all of the folks that we work with, especially the young people. I mean, we do work with kids who are in high school and they just want people to see them and to hear them and honor the fullness of who they are. And, and that's really transformative. And so that for us is what cultural affirmation is and why it's so important. I actually had never heard of cultural competency until now. Can you elaborate a little more on that? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't really know what it means, but it's like, you know, this like lingo that gets thrown around of like, are you culturally competent? Um, and I think it's this idea of like, oh, did you like take into consideration someone's culture when you did X or Y or you created the policy? Uh, and I do think it means different things in different industries. Uh, so to me, I think the kind of um, kind of amorphous nature and lack of clarity around what it is also is puts me off. Whereas I know what cultural affirmation means. It means that you affirm who I am and my culture. Um, and everyone wants that and everyone deserves that. So speaking on the topic of affirmation, um, as someone who is genderqueer, a big topic that comes up in circles that I run in is gender affirmation. And so I was wondering how um, gender and sexuality and queerness also intersect with um, Black women and girls who are incarcerated and reentry. Yes, that's a really important point. So we use uh, women and girl in a very expansive way and in a very inclusive way. We are inclusive of uh, trans women and girls, and also gender nonconforming and non-binary folks. In addition to Black women and girls, cisgender Black women and girls being uh, disproportionately impacted by the criminal legal system, we know that is true for gender nonconforming, non-binary folks as well. So when we're doing this work, we are really thinking about um, the different ways in which people identify and really trying to center um, gender identity as people um, have it for themselves. And, and, you know, this is kind of a crass way of saying it, but sometimes our work is really just like not about cisgender Black men. And um, we actually have a study that we're doing around police violence where we were trying to figure out like who, uh, who's the population that we include and we recognize that you when know, we started out with Black women and girls, but we're like, there's so much we don't know about the police encounters that uh, gender nonconforming, non-binary, and trans folks have with police that we must also be inclusive of those um, populations as well, right? And so we really intend to be gender inclusive. 
as, as far as our work goes, um, because from our perspective, you know, if we're trying to create things that support the Black community as a whole, we need to hear all of the voices and we really need to, just need to celebrate and uplift those voices as much as possible. Um, and, and, you know, so we do use gender, uh, we use women and girl very inclusively, but it can be off-putting to folks. And that's something that we, you know, we definitely recognize. Um, I've seen people increasingly, you know, put the asterisk after girls, right? So can you tell us a little bit more about that police study and what you guys were trying to accomplish with it, what you learned from it, and also your general approach to research in the National Black Women's Justice Institute? Yeah, so the policing study really emerged um, during 2020 when um, George uh, Floyd was killed and um, Breonna Taylor were uh, killed by police. And, you know, it felt like we were hearing about Breonna Taylor, but we weren't hearing about violence against, police violence against Black women. And I you know, kind of looked around and there wasn't anything. And I've, I've been doing this work for a while. And so much of our understanding of policing comes from the experiences of Black men. Some of that is intentional and some of it is just a lack of kind of thinking that we need to consider that Black women's experiences are different. Uh, we have this problem in, in research, I think policing research and criminal legal research in general, where we don't disaggregate our data by race and by gender. And so by that, I mean, we often will see, you know, this is what happens to black people versus white people or, you know, black men versus white men, but we don't see what is happening that's similar and or different between black men and black women, right? And so we actually need to have that full kind of disaggregation for us to really understand the similarities and difference in, in people's experiences. So this study was meant to really explore what police encounters were for Black women um, and girls and gender nonconforming and non-binary folks, as well as consider the ways in which police violence is expansive. We often talk about and think about police violence in terms of fatal injury, like people who are killed by police. But there is so much that happens during an encounter with a police officer, that can be harmful, that does not necessarily result in um, someone dying or even being critically injured. The ways in which police talk to people can be harmful, right? And so we wanted to really explore the ways in which everyday encounters that people have with police could be uh, and ha have a harmful impact on people's lives. As far as your second question about like how do we do work um, at the National Black Women's Justice Institute, I think it's it's there are ways in which it is similar to what, how it happens in other places. I mean, we, um, myself and uh, our research, our director of research and advocacy are both folks who have PhDs, both people who really love research and uh, are quantitative data nerds on some level. And so we do really appreciate the methodologies. I think the way that we shift and change things up is we really center directly impacted folks in helping us create our questions and our tools and help us think about how we implement and collect data. 
we want to do work in a way that is understood by the field uh, as you know sound and strong research. We just think that engaging directly impacted folks throughout our process actually makes it even better and stronger. Um, you asked me earlier about how did Vera inform the way that, like how I got to where I am. And I think I've always thought about my PhD in this way, which is I've always known that I wanted to do community-based research, but I never thought that as a Black woman who wanted to really engage directly impacted folks and work, that I would be taken seriously if I didn't have that credential behind my name to say, she's got the training. So we approach research, and I think the very same and similar ways, we're just collaborative and do it with this participatory approach that often is not how folks in academia or in criminal justice organizations do their work. I feel like I can relate to that sentiment so much of like being uh, assigned female at birth, thinking that if I don't have this level of a degree, then I'm just not going to be taken seriously. And I, it's so, it's really sad that that's our reality. Um, but something that I'm also curious about uh, with intersectionality is how you approach, I guess, the intersection of uh Black women and girls who are incarcerated and disability, because as someone who is neurodivergent and has had issues with like, I don't know, quote unquote, invisible disabilities, um, I like obviously I have had my share of struggles and I can imagine that it's much worse for those who are incarcerated who don't have access to proper resources. And I was wondering how you work with that. Yeah, so I think it's a great question. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think we do it well. Um, we do have excellent partners that we are learning from. And I think it's really important to take into account the fact that there are folks who are living with disabilities and folks with disabilities are often at greater risk of, um, of abuse, right? By um, sexual abuse and, and different forms of harm. I think as an organization, the way that we try to do this is we just try to really be responsive and affirming of everyone that we work with. Could we be better as an organization with our policies and practices and being really intentional? Definitely. Uh, but I think that our general lens of like really wanting to affirm and support any and everyone's identity uh, and that we are partners helps us show up in a way where even I think when we're not fully conscious of it, we're probably doing better than some of the other folks. Um, but it is, and I, I appreciate you sharing that because I think it's something that we need to do better. Um, and we've been thinking about, even with our, our webinars and the ways that we engage uh, our community publicly, you know, about things like having um, closed captions, right? So that folks can engage with our work. Um, and this isn't a disability, but you know, around language too, right? Having different, having um, people who can translate. So like, if you don't speak English, you can still engage. 
this is something that, that generally I think the field needs to really figure out. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're doing our best. So, you know, if you have any ideas, I would really love um, to connect after because this is really important. We don't want anyone to feel like our work isn't um, supportive of them or isn't engaging them or is um, alienating them in some way. I mean, I would definitely love to connect afterward. Um, we do have a question from the audience, and we did want to take a few minutes at the end to answer questions. So this one is, how does the National Black Women's Justice Institute, uh, as a nonprofit, uh, position you to engage in more meaningful work? And are there any challenges that you've run into? How does it position us to engage in more meaningful work? And what are challenges that we have? run into. I think that, um, I don't know if this is going to answer the question, but I will say that for me personally, the National Black Women's Justice Institute and this role is the dream job that I never knew I had. Uh, it's the dream job I never knew I had because I never thought an organization like this could exist. So I've been doing criminal justice research for a very long time, um, work in the foster care system as well. And I have never been in a place that is Black women led, that is engaging in, in real rigorous research and is also doing it in a participatory way. It's a very special place. And so for me, that is how it has allowed me to engage in more meaningful work. It's allowed me to engage in work that is, you know, definitely, I feel really connected to on a very personal level. Um, and it's an organization that I feel like really sees me and that feels very special. I repeated the second part of that question and I've totally lost it. <laughs> the second part of the question is, are there any challenges that you've run into? Uh, any challenges? The challenges we're tiny. We, I mean, we are a small but mighty force. So our challenge has been capacity and really kind of being able to bring folks on so that we can do the work. To me, that's been the biggest challenge is, um, you know, how do we grow meaningfully and how do we do so in a way that doesn't, um, you know, I, I guess the analogy that I'm thinking about is like when kids grow too fast and sometimes they're like my body aches right and it's like I don't know if you ever heard that when you were a kid but like you know they're like oh you know you've kind of grown out of your body type thing um you guys can cut that out but <laughs> but yeah you know I just <laughs> I just think that to me I just have been really trying to think about how we grow intentionally um and really build capacity without doing it in a way that just stretches us too much too fast and on that note, we often see Black women at the helm of large-scale movements. So how do you see your work serving as the intermediate between empowering and nurturing these future leaders? I love this question. Uh, I think that the way in which we empower and nurture future leaders, uh, we I think we do it more so right now with young people, uh, but we're definitely wanting to expand and, and be able to support formerly incarcerated women who come out of um, confinement and support their leadership and advocacy. We've done it in some of our projects. It's something we want to do more of. 
The work that we do with young people in particular, though, is we are all about a youth advisory council and a really meaningful one where we're actually having young people help us develop tools. We're really centering their leadership. We're really looking to them for the answers. I always wish that I kind of could have had that kind of opportunity as a young person um, to be around um, role models who are kind of doing the thing that I thought I always wanted to do um, and to be a source of support. So we're really just trying to create leadership opportunities for young people so that they can um, maybe become future researchers and data nerds, um, or also just, um, you know, really amazing community organizers and advocates. That's incredible. And yeah, like, obviously, here at the Advocacy Project, we definitely, definitely um, care about our youth and future leaders being a student-run nonprofit. Um, Speaking of so Taylor Brown, who I was telling you about, who did so much research on this project, is an amazing member of my team. Shout out to her. Um, she Hi, wanted. <laughs> she is tuned in right now and wanted me to ask you how the National Black Women's Justice in- Institute supports women while they're in prison outside of just reentry and specific policy or program implementation that you guys use to address health inequities, um, including nutrition, gynecology. Uh, gynecological care, et cetera, whilst being mindful of barriers to care and intergenerational trauma? It's a great question. And it's work that we haven't done a lot of and that we're moving towards. So we have really looked at this pathways to wellness study that we've done in California to help us really understand not only what are the kinds of needs and supports that uh, formerly incarcerated women need in the community, but then how do we also support women who are incarcerated? We've heard so much about their experiences, particularly with medical professionals, um, gynecological care, reproductive health care that are horrifying. Um, folks who have, even in this day and age, experienced um, you know, sterilization, right, or forced hysterectomies. So the work that we are really trying to move into, and we haven't done as much of just yet, is being able to do some deep engagement with folks who are directly impacted, who are incarcerated, but also um, really trying to do some advocacy, legislative advocacy, to ensure that prisons I mean, are causing less harm. Prisons were built and meant to cause harm. So, um, but that they have access to healthcare, that they have access to mental health professionals, that they have access to education, and that they have access to, you know, um, employment where they're not just being paid pennies on the dollar. So that's some of the work that we're trying to do and thinking about how can it be gender responsive. Um, but it's the work in prisons is pretty tough and and um we're not fully entrenched in there just yet. Um, but Taylor, if you have any ideas or any inspiration, uh, give me a call. We should chat. I think Taylor would absolutely love that. Um, another thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing that actually came up while we were doing research was um, why is it, given that your organization is based in New York, that you chose to look at women in California? Yeah, uh, so we were founded in California. So many of our projects and the funding relationships we have are California-based. Some of the funders that we have only fund in California. 
So that is actually the reason why. So the pathway study, which is um, only about women who are in California, it is a California-based funder. The re-entry work that we're doing on the whole though will be a national project. So that's why we have a lot of California-based projects. And we now have a New York-based project. And you know, we are definitely thinking about uh, doing work that is state-based and regional as well as national. Um, since we are a national organization, but, but sometimes the um, way in which you do your work is constrained by, you know, the strings on the dollars. Yeah, um, that actually makes me think, given that, you know, California and New York are both blue states, how would you say, do you think there is a difference in data that you would acquire or, um, yeah, the experience of Black women and girls who are incarcerated and who are going through reentry in different states and how would that be beneficial to look into in the future? Definitely, definitely, definitely. Um, one of the places we want to move into as far as our work is the South. Most of the women who are incarcerated in this country are incarcerated in Southern states uh, and Southern states also tend to have harsher sentencing um, of Black women. So we're definitely looking to engage in more work in the South um, but we're also looking to do work in other places like the Midwest. And part of that is because there is a need. Um, and other things that like take us to places are like we have a connection. So, for example, I'm from Michigan. Michigan also apparently I have learned in this role is a very terrible place to be incarcerated. Right. I think that my Michigan roots. Um, also, you know, help enables opening doors and, and being able to help move MBWJI into that. Our director of research and advocacy is from, uh, spent a lot of time in Chicago. So we're definitely thinking about how we move in, um, into other spaces. Um, that being said, we actually have been doing work in Indianapolis for a while. Um, and so um, while some of our more public work is situated in New York, um, in California, we're, we're, we're getting around. Um, I did Speaking see a question about where in Michigan. I'm from Ypsilanti, Michigan, in case you know anything about that. Speaking um, of Michigan, so Darshana, who wrote that question, also wanted to ask another question. Um, she is our COO, and she said, I work facilitating for a youth council in Detroit, and I would love to hear how you run your youth council and hear about the successes and challenges you see. Um, so I would love to talk to you about that. Um, I think the things I have really taken away from the youth councils that we've done, we've, we've done a few of them. I think the things that have worked really well for us are, are really engaging folks, the young people, and like the leadership, right? Like, what do you want to do? How do, how do we make this time support you uh, best? What are your amazing ideas? I mean, you all... Have, are brilliant, obviously. And it is just for me, just the personal inspiration to sit here and be like, really? Like your brain did that at 16? My brain was mush. I don't understand. And so we just really try and celebrate the young folks and try and make things that are what they want to do. So rather than trying to force um, a structure and here's a thing, when we can, we definitely want folks to tell us what it is that they want. So um, one of the projects that we worked on most recently, we created um, a bill of rights for uh, girls of color and their mental health 
um, in schools and young folks just identified their demands. They found the, the research to support why. And so we put this out and that's what they wanted. Um, the same project that we work on this year is creating a, a, a magazine about reproductive health care. Uh, and so, you know, we're just really trying to be responsive um, and center their, their needs and what they want. It is so refreshing to hear an adult say that they actually care about listening to youth voices. And I, I cannot emphasize how much I would love to delve into the mental health aspect further, but we do only have time for one more question. And so Asha wanted to know, what skills do you think are most important in being an effective advocate? And how do you deal with advocacy burnout? I think, to me, the skills that are most effective in being an advocate is our relationship building. I think that we really can't do this work without each other. And so that our relationships are really the foundation. And it means that, you know, before you even get to the point of talking, quote unquote, politics, you got to have that trust in someone and that can take time. That means like, how do you show up for people? How do you just like lend an open hand with whatever you need? To me, that is what makes you an effective advocate, because when you're asking someone to really put themselves out there, they have to trust that you're going to be right by their side and you've got their back. Uh, so that's that to me is what makes you an effective advocate. And how do you manage burnout is self-care. I don't really know the answer. I'm not good at it. But I think the answer is like really trying to take care of yourself. Um, drink water, which I don't do enough of during the day. Go for walks when you can. It's the little things in my mind that help restore me. Um, I think, you know, the grandiose, like, let me go get a massage. I don't have time for that all the time, but I can go outside and take a walk. And so I think it's like the daily practices that we can create for ourselves that are really going to sustain us. I say that feeling like a failure often at doing it. Um, and so, you know, if you guys know anything, so if you are under tons of pressure share the the knowledge but i think it's also just a lifelong practice of figuring out what's the best thing for you in a particular season of your life and that might change that that actually reminds me of um a an instagram post my mother sent me that was like treat yourself like a house plant make sure you water yourself get some sunlight and I'm like that is so important um but thank you so so much for being here it was an incredible honor to speak with you um and thank you to everyone who came out to listen um, I guess that's the end of this podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. And you guys are a total inspiration. I am just so impressed by what you all have accomplished at such a young age. Uh, and I'm so excited about what you all will do. So please, you know, hire me in the future when you guys start taking over the world. We definitely will. We'll have your resume. Uh, <laughs> Asha says in the chat, hire me. <laughs> we are hiring. Go to our website if you're interested. We got we got lots of positions open right now. Um, but yeah, again, thank you everyone for tuning in. Our next podcast will be in April where we'll be interviewing the Advocacy Center and talking about sexual violence prevention. So make sure to watch out for that.